In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Please be seated. I have a friend whose husband made her stop watching television this week because she threw a book at the television screen and he was afraid they would lose the TV altogether. She was watching the news. Just north and east of us, in Harlem and in the Bronx, there are children who've tried to cross into the United States borders. Some have come on their own, and others have come with parents and have been separated from them. Now, regardless of how one feels about the the pace of immigration reform in this country or different ways of protecting the borders, we all, all of us of faith anyway, I think, should agree that the mixture of chaos and coldness by too many is just not acceptable. My first reaction is like my friend's wife. Um, It's anger. It's frustration. But then the anger moves into sadness. I'm sad when I watch a video of parents who fight at their daughter's softball game. (laughs) Because that seems to exemplify the tone uh, throughout so many in our country. What makes me even sadder and makes me pay attention in a confused sort of way is when people in any aspect of this immigration problem in particular begin to invoke God. Sometimes I I read and and see people on the news who invoke a God with a little G, a God that I read about in the Old Testament. It's a God who orders people into battle and demands the slaughter of enemies. My own formation as a Christian, growing up in Sunday school, and then my education in seminaries, and and formation as a priest and someone who lives with Scripture, has, has shown me over the years how to read these Scriptures and others in the context of a much larger history, a much larger story of God's love for all creation. And so it shocks me when I hear that there are people who still follow that old God, who are still willing to worship that God and sacrifice and pursue that violent, angry God. But then I'm also confused by others when I listen to them, those often who are affected most by the border crisis, those who've fled violent homelands and cities, and those who offer them compassion. I listen to them when God is invoked because it's in some ways just as confusing to me. I listen to their belief in the words of Uh, Mother Mary, that the least and the lowliest are special to God, that they are protected no matter what. Whether it's our borders or others' borders, there's a global refugee crisis. And to me, it doesn't look like God is taking much care at all. (laughs) 
And so the questions are large. For me this week, maybe for you, why does God allow people to suffer? Why does God allow for such chaos? Why does God give evil so much room to roam? Well, clearly the questions are as old as religion itself. And I'm not sure the scriptures today have clear answers. But we can see at least that we're not asking these questions alone. The question comes up in today's gospel when there's a storm. It's a literal storm for them, but I think we can imagine it figuratively and symbolically just as well. And the disciples are terrified. They ask Jesus bluntly once they wake him up, Lord, do you not care that we're perishing? But in that case, it's, it's an easy answer. Jesus is right there. They just have to wake him up. And soon it becomes clear that Jesus does indeed care. He wakes up and he does a miracle. The wind calms down, the sea settles. Jesus cares. God cares. And in that situation, a miracle saves the day and restores faith, at least for that day. The Old Testament character of Job is familiar to many, and he must have been asking similar questions. God, do you not care? Do you not care that I'm perishing and my whole family has perished? If you recall the story of Job, you'll remember that he loses everything. He loses family, work, possessions, and finally even his health begins to suffer. His so-called friends sound like anything but as they give advice and just talk and talk and talk and talk and talk at him. Surely Job has brought all this on himself, one friend suggests. Surely he's offended God in some way and it's his fault, another friend suggests. Today we might call that blaming the victim, but it's as old as Job's friends and it's as recent as the commentators and politicians on television this morning. What's great about Job, and one reason I think people of many faiths have his story as a part of our sacred scripture, is that Job never caves in to that simplistic, moralistic thinking of his friends. Instead, Job demands to go right to the source, to go to God. Job stays in relationship with God. Job prays and talks and argues and yells with God. And in so doing, models for us what faith looks like. The scripture that we heard as the first reading this morning is a part of God's answer to Job. It's beautiful and it's, it's poetic, but that spoken answer of God is not especially satisfying if you really look at it in context. It's as though Job is asking God, why is there evil in the world? And God says, creation is. What kind of answer is that? And then when Job asks, why is there evil in the world and why is the evil happening to me? God responds by simply drawing closer. If you think about it, we perhaps have felt that similar thing in some of the more important conversations we might have had, where the content of what is said is not nearly as important as simply the proximity the being with someone else nearby. 
Often later, we don't remember exactly what they said or what we said, just that the person was there. And so God is present with Job. That's the point of the whole book, the whole story, the whole theology of Job, that God is present. God never leaves. God is present in storms and in good weathers, in sickness and in health, in life and in death and new life again. What Job's friends may have tried to do but did so clumsily is what St. Paul is trying to do with the church in Corinth in the letter to the Corinthians that we heard The Christians in Corinth had all sorts of problems with each other and with Paul. But Paul cautions them not to lose hope. Remember all we've been through, he says. Remember the faith that has brought us this far. And then more specifically, Paul says, as we work together with Christ, don't accept the grace of God in vain. Don't accept God's grace in vain. Another translation puts it, don't squander the marvelous gift that God has given us. Here I think Paul is hitting on something that was not only a problem for first century Christians, but is also maybe the basic problem for 21st century Christians. We all of us have received the grace of God. We've received it. It it comes in a huge form at our baptism, but even before. And so grace perhaps comes again at other times in life, in sacramental ways and in smaller ways. But we forget. We get distracted. We get busy. We focus on the negative. We become overcome by the the storms of life so that all we see is the rising water and the crashing waves, the lightning and the thunder. And so we say to ourselves, surely God might have calmed that storm way back then. But what about this one? Sure, God was with me then when I narrowly escaped the car accident or when I made it through the surgery or or when that complicated issue was sorted out. But what about this issue? It's different. What about tomorrow? And off we race into a future, leaving God behind. When we accept the grace of God in vain, using Paul's terms, It means we still probably think of ourselves as Christians, but it just doesn't mean much. We don't act much on that faith. We don't act much with it. We forget the power of Christ. And that's what grace is. It's a power. It's not a soft, wispy glow that comes over us when we're good or when God thinks we're special. Grace is power. Grace is nuts and bolts. Grace is the black and white of right and wrong. Grace is being able to know the difference between truth and falsehood. Grace is the power to love even in the face of hatred, even in the face of a fool. Grace is the power of life over death. Grace is the presence of Christ. And so if we begin to take that in vain, then we lose our voice, we lose our power, we've lost ourselves.
On Friday, a, a friend of mine died who was a parishioner at the Church of St. Mary the Virgin, the church in Times Square that I served. Um, his name was Dick Leitch. In some ways, he was a little larger than life in a quiet way. Dick had been a, a sort of early, if not founding, member of the Mattachine Society, one of the very first gay rights organizations in our country. And so Dick Leitch and his friends tried to take a lesson from the civil rights sit-ins, and they decided to stage what they would call SIP-ins. You heard the P, S-I-P-ins. And so they would go to bars where it was illegal for a homosexual to be served, or the bar could perhaps lose their liquor license or be closed, or the police would be called And so Dick and his friends would go into bars and they'd be dressed nicely and they'd say, hello, we are homosexuals and we would like to order a drink. And then they'd see what happened. Most of the bars and restaurants would ask them to leave, but they persisted. It would only be a few years later in 1969 that Stonewall's riots and raids opened things up dramatically. But Dick Leitch's group had paved the way. And of course, like all politics, uh, the Mattachine Society was accused by others of being too slow, of being too quiet, too, too subtle, too patient. But Dick just kept going. He just kept showing up and going forward, and over time it paid up, it paid off. And what's interesting about Dick is he did it in other aspects of his life as well, with relationships and with family and with work, and especially with church, the church that rejected him and others, he just kept showing up. He outlasted all of the naysayers. Dick was rejected and told he was a misfit and shut out, and he kept showing up. He never took God's grace for granted, thinking in terms of these scriptures today. But instead, Dick attached himself to God's love and then showed that love to other people. In his later years, pretty much every Wednesday afternoon and most other weekdays and all major feasts, you could find him being an usher in the back at St. Mary the Virgin. And I would run into people from North Carolina or Washington, D.C. or everywhere I had ever lived, and I would run into someone and they'd say, oh, we met a guy at your former church who said to say hello. <laughs> they had met Dick, who was the quintessential host and able to make small talk with strangers, and able to welcome in the name of Christ. He kept welcoming and pointing out things in the church, and quietly living out and modeling God's grace in ways that we all of us can do, even in the face of whatever comes. And so we must not take God's grace in vain. As children of the living God, we have died to sin and evil in the sacrament of baptism, and we have been raised up to new life in Christ. We've been sealed by the Holy Spirit and marked as Christ's own forever. And that means something. That means everything. In answer to that question that comes out of Scripture and out of our own lives, God does not let us perish. 
Things might not be easy and they might not look very good ahead, but the love of God surrounds us and the presence of Christ moves us forward. And the fire of the Holy Spirit gives us what we need to keep on in the energy of God's love and healing. And so the storms of life will keep coming for us and for others. We may feel like we're singled out and persecuted like Job, or we might feel like Job's useless friends, unable to say or do anything really of help. But God's grace is never in vain. God's grace enables us to love and to love and to keep on loving. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.